Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Asking for a Friend podcast. It's an elder-led ministry of Believers Baptist Church in Emory, Texas. And my name is Duffy Henderson, and I'm your host. The Asking for a Friend podcast exists as a weekly resource for the edification and the benefit of God's people. Here, we hope to provide helpful, thoughtful, and most importantly, biblical material as we address everyday life questions and issues. So if you find this podcast helpful, please take a few moments to share it with someone that you think would also benefit from it. Thanks for listening in, and may the Lord bless this episode greatly to you as a means of grace for your spiritual growth and your benefit. We're glad that you've joined us today. And today I'm joined, we're we're doing another, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, we're doing another interview in our kind of our, our interview series we've done this fall. I'm excited for our episode today. But today I'm joined with Jason Rowland, uh, one of our elders here, our senior pastor at Believers. Jason, how are you this afternoon? Doing great, Duffy. Looking forward to this conversation. Same for me. It's a beautiful day here in East Texas. Uh, we've, we are also joined by a special guest today, Mike Abendroth, Pastor Mike Abendroth. He's up in Massachusetts, correct? Is that, is that where you're at? That is true. I'm in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, where even Republicans are Democrats. Wow. <laughs> that might be another episode. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> but we are we are so excited uh, that uh, Pastor Mike has joined us uh, for a conversation today. Today is going to be pretty heavy on doctrine, but this doctrine is so important for uh, the life of the Christian. And so the impetus behind this episode, Mike, and I'll get you to introduce yourself in just a minute, but just so everyone knows, our church this year, in 2022, we have been taking our church through the 1689 London Baptist Confession, seeking to uh, adopt that and, and vote that in as one of our uh, doctrinal documents. Um, we're excited about that. We've been teaching through it pretty much since January and taking a slow process through Sunday school through our adults. And um, we came through a lot of really good stuff. If you're familiar with, I think you guys hold to the 1689 at your church as well. But we came through the chapter on the law, as well as the religious worship, chapter 1922 on religious worship and, and the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, and those issues. And those were a little bit thorny and, and prickly at times. Um, some of our, our folks were just completely um, not not familiar with those terms and kind of the, the deep dive into the law of God. And does it apply today? Was it just for Israel and those kinds of things? So we've had some really good conversations with our people. So that was the impetus behind this episode. Um, but before we go any further, Mike, I'd love for you to just take just a minute and just introduce yourself to uh, to the listener, someone who's never met you, doesn't know who you are. Give us a little bit about yourself. Sure. In my <clears throat> discipleship class, Duffy, I tell people they have a minute to preach the gospel, and then I turn the timer on. And then it's 50 seconds in and I'll say 10 seconds. So if I go past 50 seconds and you want to say 10 seconds, that that, that would be fine. <laughs> uh, I'm originally from Omaha, Nebraska. I grew up in a liberal Lutheran context, understood that God was triune. God wrote the Bible. Salvation is in Christ only, but didn't have saving faith, moved to California, um, Fast forward, my father's dying. I'm looking for answers. I knew the Bible held the answers. A girl that I was dating at the time, who's now my wife, she said, you know, you could learn about Christianity on radio. And there are people on the radio that actually teach you the Bible, not just crazy prosperity teachers, but real men of God who teach the Bible. So I'd listen to the Bible being taught all day when I was driving around Los Angeles as a sales rep, trying to understand my sin, the Savior, uh, what was a nominal Christian, what was I? And I just remember in 1989, during the fall, I don't know the exact time frame, but just thinking, I know I'm really a sinner and Jesus is the real Savior. And like Luther, you know, Luther said, it's one thing to say Jesus died on the cross. It's another thing to say Jesus died for sins. And it's even another thing to say Jesus died for my sins. So somewhere along there, I learned that Jesus was my savior. My sins put him on the tree and that I was a Christian. And uh, 
the Lord gave me faith and I exercised that faith. And then I wanted to learn the Bible. So ever since then, since 1989, I've been on this quest to try to learn as much as I can about God and his word and then to teach others. And so I've been pastoring here for 25 years in Massachusetts and have been a Christian since 1989. Wonderful. Now, um, I, I believe I, I was on your website, your church's website, just to try to pull a little bit of information You've been at, at Bethlehem Bible Church since 1997. Is that correct? Yeah, it should have been a should have been a warning because I got here April 3rd and April 1st it snowed 30 inches and so my flight had to be canceled from California. And maybe I should have thought that was an omen or something. <laughs> but uh, uh, joking aside, the people here love the Bible. Mm. I preached a few weeks ago on death, that it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. And how a fool says, I don't want to think about death. And a wise person thinks about death and his own death and who's the savior and who conquers death. And I thought to myself, and then I said it to others, I can say anything to Bethlehem Bible Church as long as it's from the Bible. Uh, she, the church, wants to know the word. She expects a Christ-centered sermon every week, moralism, pragmatism, consumerism. She won't handle, uh, nor will she accept. And so I just have the, the greatest church and the greatest group of folks to preach true to every week. And that's what I was doing earlier today, working on my next sermon because uh, they want to learn about Christ Jesus. And Ecclesiastes, uh, it, it, half of the book is is exciting, and the other half of the book is killing me because it's hard to yes. preach week after week after week. Yeah, yeah, you can't pick and choose, though, right? You know that you got to go through every verse. <laughs> That's right, Jason. I, I, Jason, you can. Uh, by the way, uh, Mike, Jason has been here at Believers since is it nineteen ninety nine or two thousand? Two thousand. So we're, we're, we're about the same in terms of tenure then, right? Yes, yes. Um, I've been working through Romans. We just finished the uh, last verse of Romans chapter 8 this past Sunday. And so now I'm in this in-between space before we start chapter 9, which we probably won't do until after the first of the year. But but in, in trying to... Um, uh, think about what to preach next and what series I want to go to. I mean, th there's the problem is that there's too much stuff to preach and narrowing it down to, Hey, I can preach this this week. And then we've got the holiday season coming up and how to think about all that. So I can relate to some of the struggles that uh, you have and particularly with some of the books are, are more difficult than others. Well, and I'm sure you've experienced this, Jason, being there for so long and getting older. I now have to say to myself, there are certain books of the Bible I will not be able to preach through. Yes. And so pick and choose wisely. What does the congregation need? What's the Lord been working on my heart regarding certain passages and books? And so it's fun. Every, every week, it's kind of like, well, I should show up on Sunday for lots of reasons. And, and one is maybe to just see what I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, uh, as Duffy said, we have been working on the 1689 for all year, and um, we did come into um, the section on law and, and, and having that discussion with the gospel. What does that look like uh, in terms of uh, the believer? How are we to think about the law? And, and so thank you uh, for taking the time. I know that this has been a subject that you have uh, had conversations around and no doubt preached on it. Um, I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm working through, um, just cracked open your book, Gospel Assurance, this week. And I'd like to start working through those 31 days of, of, of guidance to assurance. But that just reading that introduction uh, was helpful, Mike. And I appreciate that the, the time, the thought you put into that. But, but assurance, Gospel Assurance, um, dovetails in and really is a result of the, the understanding, a proper understanding of law and gospel. It's so true, Jason. What has happened in my life as, I'm be, as I've been studying, I think it was probably years ago, I began to think, all right, the book of Hebrews, uh, 13 chapters, most of all the imperatives are in chapter 13. There's a whole slew of them. And there are Warning passages, of course, in Hebrews, but the book is about who Jesus is, and these people are suffering, they're losing their homes and property, 
And so I thought, okay, what do you say to a group of people who undergo trials? It's the only sermon in the New Testament giving to a local church. It's an established church. So I began to think about Christ, center preaching. Then I began to think about, okay, uh, that relates to assurance. That relates to law gospel. That relates to sanctification. And so really that's been the focus of the ministry here at Bethlehem Bible Church and No Compromise Radio over the years. It's a Christ-centered law gospel uh, assurance and sanctification, how they all go together and all they're all tethered by Christ. And so uh, th- that's exactly what, what has happened. And so when you guys are working through the law of God, that's one of these key components in the conversation. And I'm glad you're doing it. If I were to talk to people that are church and uh, maybe a new person, and they come out of typically evangelicalism. Sometimes they, I think maybe that they believe the 10 commandments are just for Israel or they don't really know what to do with it. I mean, Christ is the end of the law to all who would believe. And so what do we do? And so if I simply say, Jason and Duffy, that God is holy and righteous and just, and therefore his law reflects his holy, righteous, just character, that he and his law are not separated. It's not like the law is floating around out there abstractly. No, it's a reflection of his character, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and Romans 7. I think if they get that, then I'm off to the next step, that since God doesn't change, his law doesn't change, so then what does change? And then I begin to talk about our relationship to the lawgiver, right? We're no longer under a, a God who's our judge because Jesus has been judged in our place. We're under God the Father, and he is still using the law, but not to condemn us because there's no condemnation for those in Christ, but to guide us. So that's kind of how I begin, and we can go backward and, and unpack that a little bit if you'd like, but that's just kind of the way I've been working through. Here's who the God, here's who God is. Here's how law reflects who he is. And now what's your relationship to the lawgiver? And lastly, and I'll, I'll stop for a second. It really helps if you begin to talk about earthly fathers who are far from perfect and how they parent and the relationship we have to our earthly fathers. And when they disciplined us or they told us to do something, it was with the relationship of father to son or father to daughter, not judge. And and therefore, I think we get this picture of, oh, my dad wants me to obey him on earth because it's good for me and it makes his name great. Um, so that that's kind of the my entry point into thinking about the law of God. That's a great analogy. Yeah, that's actually. Duffy, I know you, you, uh, Duffy. I'm sorry. I know you had some some thoughts to kind of lead this, so I didn't mean to jump in on that. But no, absolutely. Um, no, that's a great segue, kind of into the the meat of the episode where we want to get through. We've got quite a bit, and we can go quick or slow or or, or fast. I always um, go slow. Just but, uh, <laughs> Mike, take your time here. Um, but would love to just you, you mentioned several several issues um, that the believer that might come to this issue of law gospel, some of these words, assurance, law and gospel, and those types of things. Can you kind of break those down for us just a little bit but more specific on what we mean by the law? Usually, now of course there are several meanings of the law in, in scripture, but just in this context of law gospel uh, as a hermeneutic, as we approach and 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 look at scripture, um, and then how that informs our sanctification and assurance. Can you kind of just talk through those definitions really quickly, and then we'll we'll kind of move forward. This will be a 10-part show, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we probably so 10 parts. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> law is something that God tells us to do. It's an imperative. It's a command. Gospel just means good news, and it's something that God has done. Assurance, the root word in assurance is S-U-R-E, sure, that you're sure that you have right standing before God. So that would be my simple definition. Then to unpack a little bit more, we think of general and specific or broad and strict. So law in the Bible could be used lots of different ways, and it could be instruction, right? That Torah, it's just general instruction. It could be used of the five books of, of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the, the, the book of the law. 
But strictly speaking, and that's the context for today's show, strictly speaking, the law of God is what God tells his people to do. And we'll start off with Adam. And Adam was told uh, to do certain things or to not do certain things. And he was given a law. So just imagine you're in Texas uh, and you think, what are they doing up there in New England around wintertime? Well, in New England, I have a snowblower called a snow thrower, actually. And it has forward it has neutral and it has reverse. So Adam's in the garden. He's in neutral. He's not going anywhere. He's told to move forward and obey God's laws, uh, positively keeping those laws. And if God says not to do something, not to eat of the fruit of the tree, etc. So do whatever God said. And so Adam, instead of obeying God, it's like he jams it into, into reverse, doesn't even put the clutch in, and he goes backward. And therefore, he's breaking God's law. And of course, the wages of sin is death. And if you break God's law, uh, there's punishment. God's so infinitely glorious. The punishment is going to be infinitely awful. And how many times do you have to spit in the king's face before he banishes you? And so Adam did not do what God told him to do. The law is to do. And so he goes backward. And while we're thinking about law, we always think of one Adam and then another Adam. So the first Adam, he didn't obey God. He jammed it into reverse. Now we think about the Lord Jesus and why he didn't come to earth on Friday, die, and then be raised on Sunday. He came, the second Adam, to perfectly do the law. And so he, Jesus, not only paid for Adam's transgressions and all those who would ever believe in Christ to get Adam from reverse back to neutral and all those in Adam, but also God still told Adam to do things, to go forward, to put it in first gear and obey. So why does Jesus die on the cross? Well, he dies for our sins so that we might not have to pay for those, but he also then perfectly obeys the law, right? Galatians 4, born of a woman, born under law, that he might redeem us, but also that he might merit righteousness, get to do the right thing. So now Jesus, unlike the first Adam, he puts it into first, as it were, to try to explain it so that he can drive forward so that he can do what Adam is supposed to do. So law is to do. Gospel is done. That's the part where Jesus, he in fact dies for our sins. He lives for our righteousness. It's all about who Jesus is. And as I'm talking about it, I'm thinking, guys, gospel could be used for New Testament is gospel, Old Testament's law. Calvin would talk that way sometimes. Gospel is a genre. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just general good news. But gospel today, strictly speaking, is good news about who Jesus is. So when we're talking about law gospel. We're talking about Adam. We're talking about what he did, what he should have done. We're talking about the second Adam, what he did for sure, law gospel, and then how that relates to assurance and other things we'll get into. But I know after I talk for a few minutes, I'm supposed to land the plane and then I stop. <laughs> I appreciate that. I know you could go on and on and on. Jason, do you want to jump in there for a second? Any, well, any I, well, I no, I appreciate the way that you've uh, explained those terms, those words, and all those words are certainly common to uh, Christian um, communities, Christian uh, congregations, as we think about uh, the Christian life. And uh, in the context of law and gospel, that gives us some clarification, and the analogy was perfect. So then I think some of the confusion comes, Mike, where they, the common believer um, would not see um, where Adam particularly, it's not explicit that he was given a law. So some of the, some of the pushback and and I mean that in a not in a negative way but just some of the the thought process is we don't see um, that explicitly other than don't eat of the fruit and uh, and what are your thoughts about that how does that um, help us to understand better yeah sure well some of the things uh, with this conversation are some of the problems are solved when we think about what we talked about earlier, the first Adam and the last Adam. And so sometimes we need New Testament revelation to help us go back and understand Genesis. I mean, simply, we wouldn't understand that uh, it was sin 
that, that, that Adam, I mean, the word sin's not used. We know it's sin because later Revelation talks about it. We don't even know the name of the serpent until later he's named Satan. So my point is we use later Revelation to help us interpret earlier Revelation. And so therefore, I look at Romans chapter 5, and I think, oh, uh, Romans 5, 12 and following help me with the parallel of the two atoms. And while they uh, affect those under them, uh, there's, this, there's this relationship, first atom, second atom. And so what I'd say, Jason, is uh, what kind of law, uh, if anything, was written on Adam's heart? What did God tell him not to do and to do? What would happen if Adam perfectly obeyed? And so some of this, I think, is is big picture, like you said. Some of it is just week after week when I'm grinding things out. I, I say to myself, what does the London Baptist Confession say? Chapter 19, 1. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which he, which bound him and all his posterity to a personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it and endued him with power and ability to keep it. And so what I begin to talk to people about is, well, are, are you telling me that Adam didn't have uh, the law of God written on his heart? What does the conscience do? Uh, and so I just begin to work with them. My problem is this, guys. I, it, 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 I come to these conclusions over 10 years, and I expect my congregation to get them in a week. <laughs> true. true. Hey, we've, had, we've had some of those same conversations around here. Yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a slow, slow broil or a slow, a slow boil. Um, it takes yeah. time. So well, I guess I, I don't think I answered your question well, Jason. So let me try it one more time. Okay. I would probably say, uh, let's work through Romans chapter five, uh, 12 and following. And why do people die before Mosaic law? That's going to help us understand the law of God, the conscience, uh, the universal written obedience in the heart of man. Let's go to Hosea 6, 7 and talk about um, what Adam did do or didn't do. And I know there are competing views, but a, a simple reading to me is is pretty simple. Let's talk about the life of Jesus and the life of Adam and begin to see some similarities in terms of what they do and don't do, how Jesus is supposed to keep the law. What does that tell us about the first Adam, how Jesus stands up to temptation of Satan in, in the wilderness and Adam does not stand up to temptation in the, in the garden. And so once I begin to see some of those parallels, it's easier uh, for me to tell people uh, about the law. Right. That's helpful, Mike. That, that, that's great. And, and would you uh, agree with this be part of this conversation as well in that the, the law would not have been codified before Moses, but then that doesn't mean that it didn't exist. That's, that's, yeah, that's exactly right. And I'll, and I'll pull up um, Romans chapter five right now while we're talking, because why does anybody die? And, you know, why, why do infants die? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this gets us back to uh, federal headship, right? There are different views of our relationship to Adam and to Christ. But I think the right one, without a doubt, is federal headship. And it says in Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And he has kind of a little dash. It's almost a parenthetical statement. Now he said, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And then, then he goes on to be compared uh, to Christ. So here's what Paul is doing big picture. And, and I know, Jason, you've just recently preached through it. Or maybe since you're finishing Romans 8, your Romans 5 series was five years ago. <laughs> be that as it may, you say, okay, one man can affect many. That's Paul's argument. Did you know what Jesus did can affect many people? And the Romans are going, well, really? Can what one man do, what one man does affect many people? And so then Paul says, of course, look at Adam. Look at what Adam did. And so Adam sinned and 
that first sin was credited to all his posterity, except the Lord Jesus, of course. And then consequently, we have a sin nature. And Paul is arguing many things, including why would anybody die if they'd never sinned? Well, there's going to be this federal headship of Adam and how his sin is credited to our account pre-Moses, and we have a conscience, and we have the Ten Commandments written on our hearts, and there were plenty of people murdered before Moses. How do we know that's, how do we know murder's wrong? Uh, Where's the law written in stone that says to Cain, uh, you can't kill Abel, and that's wrong. And so there, there is a law in the, in, in, from God to Adam uh, verbally, uh, and then there's also a law that's in his conscience. So I, I, I even forgot what your question was. Jason. No, that, that's clear. <laughs> that, that, I just wanted to be clear as to the understanding that the, um, the common thought and, and argument at least in part, would be, well, we don't see an explicit law before the Ten Commandments. We don't see it written anywhere um, in the Genesis account. Um, and, and so why would you say that there is a law that would exist before we see it as it's codified uh, in Exodus chapter 19? So that's where I was going, and you've answered that. that was, yeah, that's and, and you know what, Jason, and, and of course, we're kind to people who are working through these issues, but yeah. it's, it's, it's the burden of proof is on them. So, so, so you mean to tell me there's no law before uh, the, the Ten Commandments? You mean there's, there's no law in Exodus 1 through 19? Uh, uh, and, and of course, they're not going to be able to prove that. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I think to myself, uh, when I think of law, in the old days, I would think, okay, there's a moral law, uh, there's a civil law, how to how to run Israel, and there's a ceremonial law, types and shadows, pointing to Christ. We're not talking about kinds of law in this discussion. We're talking about uses of law. How do we use the law? And there's three main uses of the law. And if you think of a, a mirror and a curb, like on the side of a road, road, C-U-R-B, and then a guide or like a map. So if I was teaching my kids, I'd say, first of all, the, the law is like a mirror. And so the mirror uses for unbelievers only. And you're going through life and you, you know, you think you look pretty good. And all of a sudden you get one of those mirrors with a big uh, illumination thing around the outside. And it says 10 X on there and you turn it on and you look at your face. And if you looked at my face, you'd see all kinds of wrinkles and pock marks and all kinds of things. And you're like, I look like that. That's the use of, of, of the law, God's word to show us that, in fact, we're really sinful and that we don't have blemishes and defects. We have sin, transgression, iniquity, etc., and we're going to have to pay for those because they're against God. And so the law shows people, to use Heidelberg, their sin and misery. Then for believers and unbelievers, the law curbs sin. It's in general, we know in the population, the Ten Commandments, and don't commit adultery, and don't steal that's usually not in this particular conversation, then the final use is a guide. And that goes back to earlier when I was talking with you and Duffy, Jason, that the law guides us. And so while we tell the unbeliever, if you look at a woman with lust, you stand condemned. Now we tell believers, don't look at a woman with lust. It's sin, but you're not condemned because Jesus has already paid for that. But for your good, you don't want to get chastened anymore. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, disciplined by God uh, and for God's glory and for other people's sake, don't look at a woman with lust. So the law is the same, but the relationship is now we're adopted in the family of God. We're sons and daughters. And therefore, this law guides us. It doesn't condemn us. And so once we begin to talk about law in general, see what has happened. We talk about law before the fall, law after the fall. Is there grace before the fall, after the fall? Then what about the three kinds? What about the three uses? And, you know, the whole section in London Baptist Confession, chapter 19, there's a lot of stuff about the law and our congregation needs to know about it. And we need to know about it because most people that I know who don't understand this 
show their ignorance. Of, and I was ignorant for years, so I'm, I'm not better than anybody else. Show their ignorance of the law by scolding people all the time from the pulpit, mm-hmm. right? By trying to put them back underneath a covenant of works, if they could, by putting them underneath, you know, this is a mirror to show you your sins. And if you don't do these things, you stand condemned. And that is not the way to preach. If, if Luther walked into a congregation and heard that kind of preaching, David Gordon's right. He'd think I'm back in Rome Hmm. because now what we're doing is we're saying, you're not standing before God based on Jesus's works. You're standing based on uh, your own works. And once justification and sanctification become blended, you now stand before God on your own works. You never can. You're just told to do more and to try harder and everything else. So I think it's very, it's, if I was, if a congregant was watching this, I'd say, This is an important doctrine, and it's not just esoteric and floating around somewhere. No, no, it's really, really important. And dear congregant, you need this as much as the pastor does, because you, congregant, if you're like me, you use law all the time and order your kids around. Law is fine. Stay away from that car. Don't jump off the top of the roof. Uh, Obey your mom. No elbows on the table. Uh, Whatever your rules are, you tell them all the time. But I mean, please, uh, the way God parents is before the law, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the land of, out of the house, uh, out of the, uh, out of the land of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. And so you think, oh, I should probably tell my children that I love them, that they're wonderful. I prayed for them. What a gift from the Lord that they are. And in light of that, you should obey me. Look at what dad has done. One time I said to one of my children, they hit the other child. This is, they weren't in their twenties. They were little. (laughs) That's good. That's good information there. (laughs) And I said, go, go into dad's bed. And I walk in there and I said, you know, uh, everything that you have, I bought you gladly. Does daddy take you on the best vacations? Haven't I taken you across the world? Yes. Don't we get to go to Santa Cruz every summer and surf and everything? Yes. I take you to the best doctors, right? Dr. Lucy, she's the best doctor. Matter of fact, I even make sure you sit underneath the best pastor in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And then I say, in light of all that I've done for you and how much I love you, what do you think? And then she said, no hitting, right, dad? (laughs) I said, yeah, no hitting. Yeah. And yeah, so this is imp- this is important because left mm-hmm. to ourselves, guess what? Only law in our heart, conscience, yeah. gospels from the outside. You need a preacher. You need a Romans 10 proclaimer. You need somebody that's got ugly feet, but they look really nice when they bring good news to you. And you're like, I need it from the outside. Good news. And so left to ourselves, our default is law, 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 law. There's nothing wrong with the law if you use it lawfully. That's right. And therefore, after the spanking, what do I say even after? I love you. Nothing can change our relationship. Just remember this next time. So this is not just important for churches and pastors and preachers and Sunday school teachers. This is important for parents. This is important for evangelism. I see evangelists repent, turn or burn. World's ending. And I'm thinking, do you have any good news? Right. You're giving law. That's true. Believe is a gospel imperative. But how about any good news like like Jesus loves sinners? Yeah. That's that's really good. There's so much Amen. there, Mike. So so good. Um, so let's let's kind of uh, funnel this down just a little bit, talking about the law specifically. And let's let's talk a little bit about the third use specifically. So we're talking about the believer and the appropriateness of the law of God, specifically the Ten Commandments, but um, you know, even in broad terms, are is the Christian under any law as a guide, right? This third use. And do you know of any, or have you, I'm sure that you've heard, but maybe one or two objections to that specifically. Um, we're not under law, we're under grace, that sort of stuff. Um, before we dive into uh, talking about the use of it in our sanctification, I know we've already kind of touched on it, but any objections to that that might be helpful to walk through? Sure. Well, uh, I just saw this quote the other day by Tertullian, and he was quoted as saying, Christ crucified between two thieves. 
in the context of uh, you've got on one side of Christ in this debate, antinomianism, anti-law, hey, we're not condemned, we do what we want, and then legalism, I do extra things so that God is pleased with me, and those are the two thieves of the Tertullian debate. Most of the stuff, uh, most of this arguments have to do with antinomianism, with this, that we're not under law, we can do whatever we want. Uh, for the record, and I've said it many times, all three of us, we want people to live a holy lives, a holy life. If I have my children, uh, my children, I don't want them running around lawless or anything like that. We want people to obey and honor God and to fear him and to work and to sweat and to toil and to evangelize and to pray and to do one another's and to walk by faith and not by sight. The list could go on and on and on. Those are all commands in the Bible. And, and we're, we are under those commands, not as a mirror to condemn us. We could say, oh, I remember when I was condemned by those things as a mirror. Praise the Lord for Jesus. But now they're to guide us. And so Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And now here comes the commands. He had one command earlier in chapter two, but few and far between in chapters one, two, and three. Now he says, walk in a manner worthy. And it's it's like my, my this hand's a fulcrum, and here's the scales, and chapters one, two, and three are all about who you are in Christ. And now he says, live in a manner worthy to kind of balance out the scales, become who you are, to use that kind of language, conduct befitting an officer, not to become an officer, but you, but you are an officer, not to become my son, but you are my son. And he gives all kinds of quotes, all uh, uh, commands rather. Here's the key. Who's giving you those commands? So the marrow controversy back in Scotland was important because they said you receive the commands as a Christian from the hands of Christ yeah, from, from a father, not the judge. Yeah, and yeah. so that's the key. Are Christians under law? First use condemning mirror? No. Under law to guide and to direct so that we might honor God, so that we might uh, give him glory. So out of gratitude, we obey. Yes. I mean, we can think about it this way for a second. True or false? The fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. True. We say true, right? If you look at Job and figure out the, the center, theological center of Job, it's chapter 28. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Somebody said, well, should I fear God? I'd say just depends on who you are, what that fear is like. Option one, you're an unbeliever. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You ought to be afraid of God. He is judge, jury, and executioner, and you will pay forever. There's a place called hell that's the fear of the Lord for the unbeliever. What about right. fear of the Lord for a believer? Mm. Ringing fear, a servile fear, uh, like an unbeliever would fear God? Absolutely not. This completely is different. This is what Luther would call a filial fear, uh, where we get the word son in Latin, where a father knows his dad is so great, so esteemed in the community, so full of honor, so trustworthy, that my dad on earth is so great. I want to honor him. I want to obey him. I want to make him look good because he does, in fact, look good in the community, and it's true. And now we take it to a higher level when it comes to now God. We as children of God want to fear God with awe and reverence and obedience and honor, but it is not cringing. You know, the dog's going to get kicked again. And so should unbelievers fear God? Yes. Should believers fear God? Yes. What makes a difference? Judge father. Yeah. Christ makes the difference, right? That's right. That's right. Absolutely. The gospel is what changes our relationship to God and the law and his law, right? And I think that Amen. has been that has been what we have been trying to communicate clearly from the pulpit and in our Sunday school classes that we have a new relation. The law hasn't changed. God hasn't changed. I love that you brought that out because the law is tied to the nature of God. So if he's immutable, uh, eternal, all of these attributes that we you know praise God for, he doesn't change, then the law hasn't changed. Our relationship to it has changed. And I think that's a crucial point for the average Christian to really think through and to be, to find assurance 
that they're standing before God. They don't have to keep themselves justified. You already you mentioned that a little while ago, but that is such a crucial thing that uh, preaching, that one of the characteristics of true preaching is exhortation, which is law, application. There's there's an, there's a, a burden placed upon the listener, the congregant, to go and do, to go and change, to conform to this, right? That's a, that's a key aspect of, of biblical preaching. It isn't just an information dump. And so if, if there's just law, 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 which is good, like you said, all the time, then that's going to beat that Christian down and they're going to lose their assurance because they're going to think, well, I just can't ever measure up to this. The, the pastor just, he, he keeps telling me to do this and I can't even do what he de- t- said last week, all these things. And so I want to move this conversation into um, the, the realm of sanctification and assurance. And this is the where we rest and trust in the promises of the gospel. And we have the blessings now and future, right? This already not yet with the blessings, every rich, all the riches of Christ we have now. So would you kind of take us into the sanctification and assurance portion of this episode and um, give some comfort in this using the law as a guide for the Christian? Yeah, but giving goes up when you keep people in suspense. <laughs> That's true. Next yes. week. <laughs> <laughs> well, <clears throat> Duffy, what you said about the Lord changing everything is so true. When you look at the book of Hebrews, we have a high priest. Can you imagine? What do priests do? Priests offer sacrifices and they pray. And here, the Lord Jesus, he actually is the sacrifice as well, and he makes intercession for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we have uh, an advocate, we have a mediator. One man said, a mediator stands between you and God, and an advocate stands with you before God. And, And we have both Jesus, an advocate, and a mediator. And therefore, when we think about assurance, I put this in the book, and it's basically the theme of assurance in my, my, in, in, in my thinking. Luther said, when I look to myself, I don't know how I could be saved. But I look to the Lord Jesus, I don't know how I could be lost. But the default is this subjective looking to self. Do I have enough fruit? Do I have enough evidences? There's nothing wrong with looking at self. If you'd like to look at the Holy Spirit's work in your life, that's perfectly fine to do. You can look at it two ways. Number one, Romans chapter eight, Pastor Jason just been preaching through that. I'm sure he's familiar with it, where the spirit of God bears witness to your spirit. Uh, and he or she cries out a screeching cry of a pregnant woman in labor, cries out, Abba, Father. What's Paul talking about there? Paul is saying, when you're really hurting and when you're really down and out and when you can't find answers, you cry to God. That's a sign of the spirit of God working in you. And then secondly, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 and following, talk about fruit in our life and evidence in our life. Our Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. And so you have that little reformed syllogism. You say, well, um, believers are supposed to have love, joy, and peace. I have some love, joy, and peace. I must be a believer. Therefore, that subjective side is true. But there's something more important, and that's the objective side. That's a historical. That's the faith uh, in the objective. Object of your faith is the Lord Jesus. And that's why you look to him, and you look at his person, his work, his promises, Romans chapter 8, his love, the love of God in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, I'm in him. I take him to be true. I put this in the book, uh, Gospel Assurance, that I, I just compiled I'm laying there, I'm tired, I'm sick, I could be dead, I'm worried, full of anxious thoughts, no family, no clergy, nobody, COVID isolation. My friend sent me a video and he said, God loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus can be trusted. You can take him at his word. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Whoever believes on him shall not be disappointed. Those are all things talking about the object of our faith, who Jesus is. Historical Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He's, he's, he's really the Lord. 
And, and that way we can go to a verse that's so taken out of context and, and still survive as Christians. Here's the verse taken out of context. I'll, I know you know where it is, so I won't give the, the, the reference yet. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And people go, yeah, see, that's bibliology. That's you know sufficiency and the word of God. It does its work. It convicts. Well, those are all true. To quote G.K. Beale, that's the right doctrine from the wrong text. <laughs> it goes on in Hebrews 4. No creature is hidden from his, his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's the language of opening up the neck of the of the sheep or the goat so you can just slice the carotid and the jugular with one slice. And here we stand before God naked and exposed. It's frightening. That makes the next two verses all the better. Since then we have a great high priest. Not just on earth where he passes through the veil under the holy holies. He passed through the heavens. Jesus, humanity, the Son of God, divinity, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without, oops, did you hear that? Okay, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of every throne in the Middle East. Every throne you'll ever find is a throne of judgment, a throne that, that meets out judgment on people and justice. And for the first time and the only time I can think of in Near Eastern literature, it says, let us boldly draw near to the throne of grace. Because what do you get from the throne of grace? You get grace and you find grace and help in time of need. So it's all about who the Lord Jesus is and our obedience wavers, uh, but the Lord Jesus doesn't. And for the people that really struggle with assurance, I say to them, do you know what? You're not obeying. Would you like to obey? Do you wish you obeyed more? Dear Christian, are you sad you disobeyed? Uh, are, 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 are you praying that God would forgive you when you disobeyed? Oh, yes, I'm praying those things. But how could I sin and still be a Christian? Well, A, Romans 7, and B, who do you think gave you the desire to want to obey? Mm -hmm. Satan? CNN? Who, who gave you the desire to obey? <laughs> so uh, I, I think this whole... This, this whole argument of assurance needs to be framed this way. Rome took away assurance because you can get people to work harder and you need the priest if there's no assurance. And mm. it was a reformation's recovery of the doctrine of assurance plus the will plus sola fide, et cetera. But it was a recovery of the doctrine of assurance. You can know that you have eternal life. Amen. That's so good. Jason, do you want to follow up with that? Add anything to that? You're muted, by the way. Okay, here I am. I'm sorry. I, I would follow up with uh, just looking again at your book, My Gospel Assurance, A 31-Day Guide to Assurance. And in the introduction, one of the things that you write here, how was your quiet time today? Did you read your Bible enough today? When was the last time you preached the gospel to anyone? Have you been self-sacrificial in your love for others? How is your prayer life? I mean, these are common questions that the, the believer, the sincere, the true believer will want to evaluate and think about and ask about his or her life. But then you come back and and you say something that is so helpful because what that means for the believer is that um, I've got to work. I can't rest. There's no rest in the gospel. There's no rest in what I need to be understanding and doing as a believer. It's just this constant um, sense of uh, pressure and exhaustion. And But you come back in your um, book, again, in your introduction, and you say this, Jesus read and studied the Old Testament enough. Jesus preached the gospel enough. Jesus' sacrifices for his family and his friends and his enemies were enough. Jesus prayed enough. Jesus said, it is finished. And, and the point that you're making is that 
we tend to preach a lot of law, a lot of, hey, you need to have your quiet time. You need to pray. You need to do all these things in obedience, which is true. But also there's an aspect of that in which we can rest in the assurance that our Savior has done these things for us. And our righteousness then is not based on me and what I accomplished, but it's based on what Jesus has accomplished. And I just so appreciate I think that's part of what it is to have assurance. And that is part of what it is to, to take the, the, the thoughts of the law and with the gospel get assurance that yes, I am a child of God and I'm trying and want to love God's law, um, but I love the Savior who accomplished the law for me. A- Amen. And that's exactly what I'm after. And Jason, let's use that illustration again of uh, adults uh, on earth and father and children, either father and son or father and daughter. Uh, Daddy, uh, you told me to clean my room and I, I tried to clean my room, but I didn't get it all done. Am I still your 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 daughter? Uh, you, you told me to, to study real hard for this test I had at school and, and I didn't really study that hard. I wanted to, but I didn't really do it. Am I still your son? I kind of mouthed off to mom a little Ooh. bit and was sassy. Am I still your son? I mean, we would never talk that way. Who would talk that way? Instead, I would say, thank you for your contrite heart. Go ask your mom for forgiveness. But I, but I love you. And uh, what you do doesn't change my relationship with you. And by the way, I think that was inappropriate what you said to your mom. And so go get on the bed. You are going to get a spanking, but it's because I love you. Yes, we want obedience, mm-hmm. but not to try to earn or keep our standing before God, but out of gratitude. It's the book of Romans. It's not Heidelberg, although Heidelberg has it. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. We want to obey out of thankfulness. And and I don't have to run around and worry, did I really do enough? It was Calvin who often said, God accepts your frail, sin-tated works, dear Christian, because he accepts you. Amen. Now think about this in ministry. There are couples at your church, I'm sure. Older men and older ladies who think, you know what, if I just am a little more godly, maybe I could counsel some younger couples, but there's probably a few things in my life that I'd like to change in my marriage, so how could I ever counsel other people? How could I ever help somebody else until my life is all perfect? Mm-hmm. That's not how this works. Uh, don't tell the couples about, you know, don't advise the couples to do the bad things that you do. Advise the couples to do the good things that God has worked in your life so that you might come along and serve. And by the way, God accepts you. Therefore, he accepts your work. And I regularly say, I have pictures in my study at church that four-year-old children have drawn of me in the pulpit of Bethlehem Bible Church. And those those pictures are awful. Stick figures. They don't look like me. I, I Maybe I would like to be that skinny, but man, those are bad pictures. But they bring them into me and I say, thank you. And I put them up on my door. And why? I don't accept them because they'd go into the Louvre. Uh, art museum. I accept them because I accept the children. And so therefore, dear Christian, even though you don't have a perfect attitude, you might have a a half-baked attitude, uh, then serve the Lord anyway with that half-baked attitude and ask him to give you uh, a new uh, attitude and repent of your bad attitude and then serve the Lord. So that's, here's my big point. We we, we, We know what a good father would be on earth. But now we make a good father on earth better than we'd think that the heavenly father would treat his children. It's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. that's right. You've got a flip-flopped, you know, back or upside down, topsy-turvy. Well, Jason, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, I'm going to ask Mike to just give a closing word of, of encouragement and assurance to the person who is struggling with these things. But Jason, do you have anything before we wrap the episode up today? No, no, I'll just say this uh, as we come to the end, um, that uh, I think once a a believer begins to to kind of grasp and and appreciate some of the things that we've said um, in this um, episode of the podcast, then that it's so helpful. It's freeing. Uh, and, and I know that the common understanding is, well, Jesus did away with the law and his death uh, uh, freed us up from the law, which is true. It, it did free us from the fact that we don't earn 
our salvation by keeping a law. It did free us up from that. But, but to be free now to obey out of gratitude and because of grace, and um, that's where you find the rest that I believe that Christians long for. And we continue to pile on. We just continue to pile on uh, with a wrong use of the law. And if we would get to the place where we wouldn't um, use the wrong law wrongly, but use it rightly, I think we would find Christians just uh, coming out of their exhaustion, uh, coming out of their um, sense of pressure, and and they would find life, and they would find joy, and they would find uh, a greater peace. And so... Um, I appreciate, Mike, what you've said and uh, the analogies that you've used and the things that uh, have been helpful to, to get us to think better about these things. Well, Jason, I, I'll tell you what, what you just told me in the last minute is your intro for your Romans 12 1 sermon. <laughs> yes. Right? Good because we, it's good thing we recorded it. <laughs> You'll have to that's right. <laughs> yeah, dictate it. And so you think, okay. Uh, Romans, we're working along and, you know, hardly any imperatives. Uh, I think the first one's in 611, if I remember rightly, but the bulk of the imperatives are in chapter 12, right? 12, 13, and then the section in 14, 15 with liberty, et cetera. And so, okay, we have all these uh, commands. How do we look at the commands? Well, if you say they're not for today, uh, you're called an antinomian. You don't want any kind of guidance or, or rules, or you don't want to obey God. That's certainly wrong. If I just tell you, you have to do these to get saved. Well, that's wrong. And so that's the right introduction. Uh, I'm preaching through Ecclesiastes and basically Solomon is saying, don't be a fool, be wise. And in chapter seven, he's talking about don't get angry. Uh, uh, He's talking about don't complain, consider God's working, all these commands. How do I preach them? Well, today we're going to look at five ways that wise people live. And they're all, they all had all commands because that's the way the scripture portrayed them. But what did I do at the very beginning? I said, Christians, uh, what I'm going to tell you today, you don't have to do these to get saved. This is not a requirement for your salvation. This is what Jesus has done. And you can see that in his life, et cetera. And then I talked to them about this is fruit and evidence of a Christian's of the spirit of God's life. And so this is what we do as fruit and evidence. And so Christians act this way, not because of salvation, not because to keep your salvation, but this is how you should live. I mean, think about what the Lord has done for you and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation, rehearsing all these things. And after he's done all that for you, he now says, here's what I want you to do. And once you say to somebody that would rescue you, oh, I'll do whatever you want. And so here's the way I want to act wisely. And it's the same thing. The hand of Christ gives you these laws in Romans chapter 12. And because you're a Christian and you want to obey out of gratitude, don't be transformed by the world. Sure. Be transformed. Transformed. You, Christian, you put all your might into, I, I can't have the world control my mind. It's a sin for the world to control my mind. But the real question is not that part, because everybody gets that with expository preaching. It's how to remind them of Romans chapter 1 to 11 every week, a little bit differently, but teaching the same truth. So it's not just this, well, we saw in Romans 1 to 11, da, 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 repeat. Right, right. So for for the Christian that's struggling, here's what I say. Why don't you regularly read the Gospels? You say, well, I'm reading through Proverbs now. Fine, you can read whatever you want. I love Bible reading, but why don't you just read the Gospels? And why don't you read specifically over and over and over every day this week, John chapter 9 and 10. Actually, they go together. And you probably are, you find yourself struggling Christian, just like that man born blind. And he had probably his own self-doubts. He then had doubts about the Pharisees. The religious teachers taught him something wrongly. His mother and father uh, disassociated themselves from him because of their own skin needed to be saved. And you know what? Here's this person who believes in Jesus. And I think he probably needs somebody to protect him and, and to guide him and to have pity on him. You know what he really needs? He probably needs what you need. He probably needs a shepherd. 
because left to ourselves, we're wandering around like sheep without a shepherd. And guess what's coming in John chapter 10? Hey, they go together. Who needs the shepherd more than anybody else does? Because we'll identify with that man born blind. And of course, we're born spiritually blind. That's true. We need a shepherd. And this shepherd's not like a hired hand. He's not like those Pharisees. He's not even like that guy's mother and father. Here is the wonderful shepherd, and he's a good shepherd. And what do good shepherds do? He lays down his life for the sheep. And nobody took it from him. He laid it up. And so you need to keep your eyes on the good shepherd. And matter of fact, that's right out of Ezekiel chapter 34. There's all kinds of bad shepherds, but God himself will be a good shepherd. And how do you have a shepherd like that? Be your shepherd. How can you say the Lord is my shepherd? I lack nothing simply by believing and trusting. You didn't have to earn it. You didn't have to deserve it. You don't have to keep it. You don't have to have the shepherd by doing Bible studies and by evangelizing and by praying and doing all these things on the treadmill, shoots and ladders. You're going up the the ladder. There's a shoot and down you go simply by trusting. And you say, well, I've already trusted in Jesus. And so now the response is keep trusting. Amen. 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 That's good. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day uh, to join us. This has been, and I pray that this will be helpful for our church members and anyone else who listens. It's been a great conversation. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for today's episode, folks. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen to the Asking for a Friend podcast, and we hope it's been a blessing to you. But before you go, don't forget to like and share this podcast on whatever podcast catcher you have. Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Google Podcasts, wherever you're listening to this, please pass this along, share it. Um, and don't forget on our on our website, bbcemory.org, you can go to our media tab, scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, and there's a box that you can submit us a question to potentially answer on a future podcast episode. So until next time, as always, grace and peace be with you all.